Welcome everybody to the Citizens Climate International uh, Sunday Seminar for the CCL November 2023 Conference, Grassroots Rising. Uh, I'm Joe Robertson, Executive Director of Citizens Climate International, and we're gonna talk today about um, game-changing climate cooperation to improve lives around the world. Uh, I'm just gonna bring up my slides here, and this is gonna be a bit Dense. We're going to go through a lot of materials, so please, you know, hold some questions and bring them up. We're going to have a Q&A and, and a robust discussion. Um, we're also going to go to breakouts later on where you'll have a chance to explore potential uh, approaches to climate cooperation, and we'll have some reporting back and discussion based on that. Uh, I want to start by just introducing you all, if you're not familiar, to the core mandate of the 1992 United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. And that core mandate that all signatory countries, all of the parties, must act towards is to prevent dangerous anthropogenic interference with the climate system. Uh, now, the sixth assessment report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change uh, which has been coming out since August of 2021, and the final synthesis report was published earlier this year, explored five possible futures for global heating. Um, and these are the temperatures that they project could be achieved in the last two decades of this century, according to these five scenarios. The green one is the one that we have to look at most closely right now, because in that scenario where we do Old global heating below 1.5 degrees, the IPCC finds that we will breach 1.5 before nature and other efforts to pull back carbon emissions that are already extant in the atmosphere uh, start to take hold and bring us back down. So that's a rosy scenario, and it's the best case that they can find. Um, in fact, the sixth assessment report finds that we will likely breach 1.5 degrees centigrade by the year 2040. Uh, breaching 1.5 is referred to as overshoot, and this is a really important detail in the current international climate policy uh, conversation. Overshoot, this is from the report itself, chapter 4.6.2. Overshoot has been found to lead to irreversible changes in thermosteric sea level, AMOC, that's the Atlantic Meridional uh, Overturning Circulation, major ocean current, ice sheets and permafrost carbon uh, and to long lasting effects on ocean heat. Now that can all be distilled down to this pretty simple idea. Above 1.5 degrees, critical regulating structures within the climate system may be lost. That means that the idea that we can actually come back to a stable climate that we're more familiar with, that has prevailed throughout the entire history of the human species, um, will be that much more difficult because those stabilizing structures may be lost. Um, some of you may have seen that, uh, that, that weather map that was circulated this uh, summer when there were five major heat domes hovering over different regions around a band in the, in the northern hemisphere all at the same time. Uh, this is something that has never been observed uh, by science, and it has never been observed in the geological record either. Um, some people said this looks like a different planet. Uh, if we were looking at Jupiter, we would see its wind currents doing something we had never seen before. It would look visibly different. Um, so 
something else that happened this summer that I just want to call people's attention to when we talk about how much warming is going on. Um, on Monday, July 3rd, we had the hottest ever temperature on Earth. The global average temperature was 16.2 degrees centigrade. That was the hottest ever recorded. And the geological record and ice core sampling, paleoclimate uh, analysis suggests it's the hottest temperature ever experienced by our species, uh, at least for the last 125,000 years. Um, the very next day, July 4th, 2023, was 0 0.98 degrees centigrade hotter. Not one degree hotter than the historical average, not one degree hotter than pre-industrial levels, one degree hotter than the hottest day ever recorded and likely ever lived by our species just one day before. Um, there is no clear, obviously attributable cause for that sudden jump. Um, it is so anomalous that we don't necessarily have a clear explanation. There are a lot of good theories. There is a lot of evidence. And the attribution is clear that it is from climate destabilization. Um, Wednesday, July 5th, tied that record. And then the 6th uh, broke it again. So we had three consecutive days that were a full degree hotter than the hottest day ever. Um, September just went even further. So you can see there on the far right of this graph, September 2023 is that much hotter than all of the other Septembers since, uh, in, you know, since the late 1930s um, and in our overall um, tracking of climate through modern scientific methods. Now, what is the politics of the 1.5 degree temperature target? Let's first consider that this became part of the Paris Agreement because vulnerable countries are likely to disappear below the waves or some will become uninhabitable uh, beyond that level. So it was added as a kind of, let's see if we can be more ambitious kind of target. And the IPCC was tasked with studying what happens at 1.5 degrees. They had studied two degrees, they had studied four degrees, they hadn't studied 1.5. The 1.5 degree report came out in 2018 and found that beyond 1.5, warming is too dangerous. There's too much calamity and mayhem in the world. We can't meet the convention mandate of preventing dangerous climate change if we breach 1.5. So when that report was accepted in Poland at the annual climate negotiations in 2018, 1.5 degrees became international law. It is the international legal standard for preventing dangerous climate change. Um, now, after the Paris Agreement, the idea of net zero by 2050, science-based targets started to take hold. And most countries have initiated some process related to that. Many companies, financial institutions, uh, even oil companies have undertaken science-based targets. Um, there are oil exporting countries that have science-based targets. Most of them aim for 2050 or later. Um, now, based on the science, 2050 is already likely to be too late to prevent danger. Um, the sixth assessment, as we just covered, shows that we will breach 1.5 by 2040. When that finding came out as part of the synthesis report in the spring, the Secretary General of the United Nations said high emitting countries at the very least should strive for net zero by 2040, and no one should be aiming for anything later than 2050. He's trying to rev everybody up to the timeline that science demands. CCI also put out 
uh, a piece at that time on our on our policy uh, website, cciblue.com, saying net zero by 2040 is common sense. Yes, it's very hard. Um, we've had government officials tell us that, you know, to decarbonize the auto sector by 2040, we have to stop selling internal combustion engines by 2025. That's fine. That's going to be challenging, but that's what net zero is about. That will maybe be too late. Everything else has to go faster. We have to do more to restore nature. We have to do more to stop disrupting Earth's natural carbon cycle. Um, some of you may be familiar with a recent paper that uh, Dr. James Hansen uh, is a co-author of that finds we will breach 1.5 by 2030. And some of you may have read that uh, this has recently been reported in Nature, uh, the journal Nature, that we are actually on track to breach 1.5 this year. Uh, that does not, however, mean that we lose the global temperature target because to actually fail on that global goal, that has to be a repeated ongoing breach, not just one year being very hot. Um, so this is the political context in which there's a conversation. There are legal agreements. There are national plans in place. There are industrial and financial plans and pathways in place. There are different interpretations of what the scientific evidence shows in terms of how long do we have. And something we certainly know is that the longer we wait, the less time we will have. Um, now, in October, in late October, um, a new report came out, the state of the climate uh, for 2023, and it had this very stark warning uh, that by the end of this century, an estimated three to six billion individuals, approximately one third to one half of the global population, might find themselves confined beyond the livable region. Just zoom in on that phrase for a minute, confined beyond the livable region, encountering severe heat, limited food availability, and elevated mortality rates because of the effects of climate change. And I'd just like you all to ask yourselves, if your family were confined beyond the livable region of the planet, if you were confined in a place where there's not enough food, where you cannot cool your home, where the heat is so intense that you cannot do anything except seek shelter and stay still and hope that that's enough, um, what would you do? I know that I would move. And I think most people would move. And the evidence we have from human history, including from right now today, all over the world, is that people will walk across some of the most dangerous places in the world in order to get from that kind of situation to something just a little bit safer, even if their rights are not going to be protected when they arrive. Um, so three to six billion individuals will have a clear inducement to take one of the emergency measures people take when you cannot live where you are. They will either migrate or they will go to war with those near them that are a little bit better off or some other calamitous circumstance will befall them. Um, and all of that is going to impose a lot of cost and disruption on everybody else in the world. Think of a world where even 1 billion people are on the move, as they say, right? 1 billion. That's five times the highest level ever measured, one billion. And this is talking about three to six. There's no country in the world that has the legal framework to handle that. There's no country in the world that has the financial resources to handle that. 
And there are no, there's no group of countries that has the cooperative framework in place that is tested, proven, and functioning that could handle that. Um, the only thing that can ensue in such a circumstance, unless we do a lot better at preparing, is something else that this paper projects, which is the failure of civilization itself. Right? I'm not saying this to be alarmist. I'm saying this because this is what the science is telling us. This is what we are observing as climate change unfolds and its effects compound each other and we start to see the underpinnings of civilization threatened. Now, one example is food security. Uh, last year, 50 million people across 45 countries were living on the brink of famine. 50 million people across 45 countries were living on the brink of famine. So whenever you hear the World Food Program is asking for money, that is why, because major sections of the world could be fundamentally destabilized if we can't get food to people who need it. Uh, there are countries that can't grow enough food as it is right now. There are countries that are banning exports of certain staple foods. India earlier this year suspended export of non-basmati white rice, something that 40% of the world depends on. Um, why? Because they didn't know if they would have enough of it for their own consumption. Um, now, of course, we want to prevent those kind of bans, but they're very difficult to prevent if the government in question doesn't have an alternative for making sure their own food supply is secure. Um, last year, a record 830 million people globally were facing food insecurity. That's three times the level before the pandemic. So whenever we think about recovery from the pandemic and we think about, you know, how is the American economy doing? How are industrial economies doing? How are people we know doing? But to remember that across the world, the economy of the world is so much worse off now than before the pandemic that it could take decades to get back to where we were in 2019 uh, in terms of global progress on reducing hunger and poverty, um, reducing the threat of disease, other threats to public health, and these destabilizing impacts that come from climate change and other things. Um, and then finally, this issue of multiple breadbasket failure. So of course, the Great Plains of the United States are a breadbasket. California is a breadbasket. Ukraine is a breadbasket. Um, multiple breadbasket failure means that multiple of these major food exporting regions fail simultaneously to produce enough food. And now that scenario where you have not just the failure of a particular crop in one region, like Brazil's coffee crop failing in a particular year and prices across the world triple as a result, right? Not something that limited or that manageable, but where multiple regions have a comprehensive failure in their agricultural production across many different export crops. And the result is that hundreds of millions more people beyond the 800 million now facing hunger simply cannot find food. Um, this is now projected to be highly probable in the next two decades. Uh, and again, we do not have in place mechanisms that can handle that level of deprivation and disruption. Um, now, that point about being confined beyond the livable region, we know that involuntarily displaced people will reach all time record numbers. This will likely be a year to year phenomenon where each year we keep setting new records. Um, that record will continue to increase and reach the billions by the end of the century. 
Most of those people currently have no legal protection anywhere in the world. It is highly possible that even by the end of this century, they still might not have full legal protection as climate refugees. Um, not unless there is some international agreement to provide that guarantee. Um, and of course, there are far too few resources uh, we see all over the world in, you know, from some of the poorest countries to some of the richest, we see cities and regional governments and national governments complaining over the stress they're facing now at basically 1% of what they will face. Um, in 2020, when Donald Trump was president of the United States, the Commodity Futures Trading Commission found that climate change poses a major risk to the stability of the US financial system and to its ability to sustain the American economy. That means the American economy could collapse under unchecked climate change. In 2021, the Financial Stability Oversight Council, so now we, this is the Biden administration, but this is the collective body of financial regulators, all the US regulators together, including the CFTC, uh, found that climate change is an emerging threat to the financial stability of the United States. In other words, Without economy-wide efforts to reduce climate-related financial risk, even the United States itself could fail. We're talking about nation-state failure is a possibility. Um, now, in 2022, Deloitte uh, tallied up all of the traceable costs that we're already seeing and what the projections are showing and found that total direct, indirect, and opportunity costs by the year 2070 if climate change advances unchecked, could reach $178 trillion across the world. And that's just what's traceable. That doesn't account for nonlinear compounding impacts that we don't know how to quantify. It also doesn't account for uh, accelerating climate change uh, if we start to see runaway effects as some of those stabilizing structures in the climate system break down. So all of this is terrible news, but it's also good news in the sense that we're getting a handle on things. We're starting to see some practical analysis of what happens if we don't get this right. We didn't have that back in 1992 when the world decided to prevent dangerous climate change. Um, many of us now experience climate change in our everyday lives. Many of us have lived through one or another type of climate disaster. And hopefully if you have, it was not that stressful to you and your family. Um, but many of us have lived through multiple major climate disasters already. Uh, and I think count ourselves fortunate to have come out okay, uh, health-wise and financially. But for countries, that is not the case. Whole countries have to respond. And so if a small island faces a disaster that costs 100% of its GDP, then it loses all of that economic opportunity and has to borrow money to now go into debt to respond to a crisis that for such a small country, it clearly did not create. Um, so vulnerability and loss and damage really have to be addressed. The key takeaway from all of this, and this is why I think it's so important to go through this context when we talk about international climate policy, is that we must reduce emissions far faster than anyone has been planning to do. And every day, month, or year that we wait adds more future calamity and cost. Now, uh, I just want to jump ahead for a minute and take a look at what happens in the climate negotiating process itself. Um, you know, it, 
back in, two, uh, in 1992, the Climate Convention has a section known as Annex One. It's an attachment to the core legal agreement. And it's a list of countries that were historic industrial scale emitters of greenhouse gases at the time of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. That didn't include, at that time, China or India. Uh, their emissions have expanded exponentially since then. Um, and now they are among the leading emitters in the world. Um, it's often said that Annex One countries are the only countries responsible for reducing emissions. Um, and that has led to a lot of opposition in the United States and in other industrialized countries where this misreading of reality has been driving political division for decades. Uh, and I think it's really important to note, this is a misreading of the actual text of the agreement. It's true that the vulnerable developing countries want to make sure that the Annex One countries, the historic industrial polluters, and now also the leading polluters in the world who may not have been part of that list um, are the ones who do the most because they have the biggest burden, they have the most responsibility, and they have the greatest means generally to actually respond. So of course, the complaint is there, those countries should lead. And in fact, the, con the convention says that this is the purpose of Annex One, to bind those countries to be leaders, not to be the only ones acting. So I should take a look at the text of uh, two sections of Article 4 of the 1992 Convention. All parties, all parties, taking into account their common but differentiated responsibilities and their specific national and regional development priorities, objectives, and circumstances shall, among other things, promote and cooperate in the development application and diffusion, including transfer of technologies, practices and processes that control, reduce, or prevent anthropogenic emissions of greenhouse gases. Boil that down, all countries have a role to play in limiting emissions and preventing dangerous climate change. It's stated right there in black and white, or in this case, in blue on blue. Um, Article 4.2 says that Annex 1 parties shall adopt national policies. It specifies that the goal is to return by the end of the 1990s to earlier levels of anthropogenic emissions of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases. The goal at the time was to get all emissions globally below 1990 levels by the end of the 1990s. Um, now we don't even talk about 1990 levels, unfortunately, which is part of the reason we have all of those skyrocketing numbers that I went through at the beginning. Um, now, the Annex One parties may implement such policies and measures jointly with other parties, meaning they can form international cooperative agreements. So the idea of climate smart trade was in the convention back in 1992, from the very beginning. It also says that any party not included in Annex 1 may notify the United Nations um, that it intends to be bound by the Annex 1 rules, that it intends to have a nationally determined contribution, et cetera. Now, the reason the Paris Agreement in 2015 was such a big deal was that it essentially resolved that division it brought into the text of a global agreement the clarification that all nations have a role to play and all nations are required to submit nationally determined contributions to the overall mitigation of global emissions. Um, and it's easy to remember that with the OMGE uh, acronym. 
it's important because even though those nationally determined contributions are nationally determined and some countries like Russia have submitted NDCs that when you really do all the math, it kind of looks like they never plan to decarbonize at all. Um, some countries have played that game, but they're operating outside of the legal framework that they signed up to. The Paris Agreement requires them to advance the overall decarbonization of the global economy. Um, this is where we got to that science-based targets concept. This is how we got to the net zero by 2050, maybe by 2040, if people start to accelerate. Um, and it's also where we get to this big question after the Paris Agreement of what constitutes a fair share. As we go into the climate negotiations this year, you'll see a lot of countries are starting to change their language around a fair share. The most vulnerable countries, the smallest emitters, they will use that language to clarify that the big polluters really have more responsibility. It's just a fact they do. But a lot of countries are now starting to move to the question of what constitutes leadership. And just doing your fair share isn't leadership, especially in a world where most countries aren't doing their fair share. They're doing less. Um, so these are some of the big questions on the table that will be discussed in Dubai. Now, here's where we have the possibility for game-changing climate cooperation. When the Paris Agreement was agreed, paragraph 8 of Article 6, Article 6.8, talked about something called non-market approaches. And I just want to zoom out for a minute and clarify what Article 6 itself is about. Article 6 is about international cooperation to accelerate climate action. The most well-known pieces of Article 6 are paragraph 2, which is about voluntary emissions trading markets. That can be any kind of emissions trading, whether it's the EU emissions trading system or provincial level systems in Canada or state level in the United States or uh, voluntary private sector uh, carbon markets. And then there's paragraph four, which is about a centralized global emissions trading system. Those are market systems market approaches because the level of decarbonization is quantified through the trading through a regulated market. Non-market is everything else. So everything else countries might do to cooperate falls under paragraph eight. And this year in Dubai, this will be the first time when there is active negotiation around implementation of article 6.8. The reason is that until last year, they hadn't fully uh, agreed on the rules for how countries should negotiate under Article 6.8. Now, I just want to highlight that back in 1992, that text that we read said that countries may cooperate. So non-market cooperation was always possible. Countries are free to do that on their own. They can form climate clubs. They can have trade agreements. They can put climate conditions in place. That was already agreed to by 196 countries and the European Union. So that didn't have to be updated, but the Paris Agreement took it further. And it said that parties recognize the importance of integrated, holistic, and balanced non-market approaches. That language will become important later on. It includes these other bold-faced elements, sustainable development and poverty eradication. Mitigation, adaptation, finance, technology transfer, and capacity building as appropriate. Um, these approaches shall aim to promote mitigation and adaptation ambition, not just mitigation, 
not just adaptation, all of it together, integrated and holistic. Enhance public and private sector participation. So one of the goals of these international cooperative arrangements would be to induce the private sector to get on board and start decarbonizing, not only in response to public sector or government mandates or incentives, but voluntarily because it's a good way to innovate and to build better products and services that have more market value. Um, and then C, enable opportunities for coordination across instruments and relevant institutional arrangements. Now, in the language of the Climate Convention and the Paris Agreement, what that Article 6.8C is saying is that all of the countries that are signatories to the UN Climate Convention and the Paris Agreement have agreed that they will consider these goals in their other international agreements, in their agreements on trade, in their agreements relating to agriculture, food security, in their relations to international financial institutions like the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund. Um, so that has been agreed. That's settled international law, right? And yet this is one of the reasons why it's taken years for the countries to come together around how are we going to work under Article 6.8? Because it, we agreed that when we do, that will require us to consider Paris Agreement goals in all areas of international cooperation. Um, so this is why it's a potential game changer. The, the rules of the game can change. The, the game of international cooperation, the game of geopolitics, the game of trade may never be played the same way again if we get the best possible uh, design of these voluntary international cooperative agreements. Now, I just want to bring up here a few examples. On the left side, you see some concepts. A group of countries could form a climate banking partnership. Some of those ingredients are already in place in the Net Zero Banking Alliance, for instance, um, that made some commitments at the COP21 in Glasgow to, uh, I'm sorry, the COP26 in Glasgow in 2021, two years ago. Um, a climate income cooperative. In, in CCL, I think a lot of us are familiar with the idea that carbon fee and dividend legislation involves border adjustments, and that means cooperating to have shared pricing levels and a kind of in-group uh, is a desirable outcome, and that's what we mean by a climate income cooperative. Earth Science Data Sharing Consortium. Some of this already happens. There's a lot of good data sharing in the world. A lot of the best climate science is, is really just from public domain information from NASA, NOAA, the European Space Agency, JAXA from Japan, et cetera. Um, but to form a consortium where that earth science data sharing actually helps get the information down to ground level to some of the more marginal communities that don't benefit from uh, science-based decision-making, that don't benefit from investment into uh, delivery of climate solutions, for instance. Um, that's the kind of thing that could emerge from that type of partnership, nutrition security, and also ocean smart industries. These are things that could be agreed. An ocean smart industry would be, for instance, one that doesn't dump pollution into waterways that ends up killing life in the ocean downstream. Um, now, some that are actually happening, um, the Africa Adaptation Acceleration Program, this is tens of billions of dollars going into adaptation in African countries. Um, the Agriculture Innovation Mission for Climate, um, that's more than 10 billion, but the aspiration is that it get to a much larger number. Uh, 
founded by the United States and the United Arab Emirates as a cooperative effort to spur agricultural innovation across the world to benefit climate outcomes um, and sustainable development. The carbon border adjustment mechanism that the European Parliament agreed to and that the European uh, Council has agreed will eventually go forward. Timeline is a bit fuzzy. It's changed a couple of times. Um, how it will affect trade with key trading partners of the EU is a big question. So that's again where climate smart trade is, is becoming a very big topic. Um, the good food finance facility, um, this is something that's going to launch at the COP28. We're supporting an event that will launch it, uh, but this is an effort to fill in the finance gaps that help make climate smart food available to people. And the Inshu Resilience Partnership, which is hard to say or fun to say, depending on your perspective, but it is an incredibly important uh, effort by insurers, by nonprofits and research institutions, by governments, and by the private sector to design new types of insurance that can handle the stresses of climate change, climate destabilization, and the human needs that flow from that so that vulnerable countries are more likely to get the kind of resources they need to respond to disaster. Um, these are just a few examples. And on the data point, I wanna just highlight this incredibly important insight that was shared at a UN meeting in April on the subject of using science information to support better decision-making at the global level. That every dollar invested in data offers an average economic return of $32. Uh, that might change if we start using scientific data in all of our decision making all the time for decades to come but right now we're very far behind that curve and so in most of the world there's a huge economic opportunity including the secondary businesses the small and medium-sized enterprises that can deliver insight to the local level that can deliver finance to the local level that can that can actually spur the diversification of robust, thriving rural economies um, that are still rural, still agricultural, but now much more diversified and prosperous. Um, before we go to breakouts, I just, uh, I'm sorry, before we go to uh, questions, I just want to highlight this, this aspect of what we're talking about, that whatever is ultimately agreed by the COP, the, the climate negotiations, it's actually the operational tools, the systems, industrial systems, financial systems, data systems, the standards and incentives set by government. These are the things that are actually going to drive climate action. These are the things that do drive climate action where it is working. We need a lot more of those things. And by some estimates, you know, if we look at adaptation finance, we need a hundred times as much as there is now. We need about five times as much uh, energy related climate finance as there is now globally, just in the next few years. Um, but we need these types of tools, systems, standards, and incentives to be bringing climate smart interventions to industry, to construction, to infrastructure, to farming, uh, to transportation, to industrial design of all kinds of products and services. Um, we need some of the biggest businesses in the world to put a little bit more energy and imagination into business model innovation so that they can actually envision a climate friendly future for themselves. Um, these are the things that are going to ultimately turn into action. And so uh, before we go to breakouts in about uh, 15 or 20 minutes, we have time for some Q&A. I'd love to hear your, your questions. Um, 
and see if we can if we can provide some good answers. Yeah, the, the first question is actually a clarification question. Uh, when you're talking about the 178 trillion dollars and the three to six million people being moved, is that a 1.4, uh, 1.5 degree scenario, the worst case scenario, or the scenario we're on the current projection for? Yeah, so both of those are current are are those are the trajectory we are on the business as usual trajectory. Uh, so if we if we get to 1.5, the 178 trillion will change dramatically. So it, that study shows that if we actually do achieve net zero in line with 1.5 degrees, instead of losing 178 trillion dollars, we will gain 43 trillion. So we're talking about a massive massive shift, a 220-some trillion dollar uh, change there. Thank you. Uh, another highly upvoted question is, um, developing countries such as Malaysia, for example, have the greatest growth in CO2 emissions in their country. Do these rapid, rapidly developing countries understand the need to cap their emissions and decrease them? Well, I, I won't try to characterize what people understand um, every country knows that globally we are going to have to reduce emissions or these catastrophic scenarios are going to unfold. And there's, there's no country that signed up to the climate convention or the Paris Agreement where leadership don't understand that. Um, the problem is that in most cases they aren't all that well equipped to make the changes on their own. We take Russia, for example. 60% of Russian territory is permafrost. A lot of that is melting. Melting permafrost is not dry ground. It's swampy, marshy, it freezes and unfreezes. It's impossible to build anything permanent on melting, tundra, uh, melting permafrost. So some people have calculated that just Russia itself will require more investment in adaptation than the entire rest of the world combined. Russia is not making friends right now in the way that would allow it to have access to those resources. So can we say we're planning the right way? In that case, we can say we're not, but it's also not easy to see how we would. Um, in the case of countries like Malaysia, where you're seeing this boom in, uh, in emissions because you have an economic boom underlying it, part of the problem there is that everything that they are trying to purchase, right, is being made by others using status quo energy systems. Uh, and so if they buy power plants to produce energy, they're more likely to get affordable power plants that produce the wrong kind of energy. If they buy commodities on the open market, they're finding markets are shaped and incentivized by governments to sell more fossil fuels. Um, virtually all of the major industrial countries are either trying to get their hands on cheap fossil fuels or trying to sell fossil fuels, um, even now. And so I wouldn't put the onus on Malaysia to figure it out for itself. The problem is that they're part of a global context where all of the pressure, all of the ongoing economic pressure is pushing against decarbonization, even with the boom in Clean energy investment, even with the incentives like like the Inflation Reduction Act, the European Green Deal, those things don't help Malaysia decarbonize, right? And so that's where formulating the right type of international cooperative arrangements to make sure that those incentives do change. That is why it's so important. Otherwise, you're going to have countries that want to 
you know, in the way some people like to talk about it, catch up to the historic industrial countries. That also means pollute like they did uh, in decades prior. So we haven't yet changed that enough to make it easy to, to just go green. Thank you. Uh, could you talk a bit about the work that CCI has accomplished and what it plans to do in the future? There's been a lot of interest in this. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, Citizens Climate International, we started out specifically to take over the international program of CCE and CCL. And, um, and that's because we have volunteers in 76 countries that need time and attention and have different circumstances. And, and so the first thing we did was get set up to start providing support to all of those places. And we do that. Um, the next thing, you know, is that we're responsible for the collective citizens climate engagement and intergovernmental processes. That's why you see that emphasis on that here. You know, one of our successes is that we've consistently been able to grow or to manage large delegations to the climate negotiations. A lot of organizations are getting one or two badges a year. Uh, we're getting 10. And I, I'm not saying that to, to, you know, celebrate our success. I'm just saying that it's a sign that the people that are part of our team, they show up, they do the kind of work that Citizens Climate Lobby likes to do. You're prepared, you're there for the right reasons, you're respectful of others' views, and you're trying to make everybody smarter, including yourself, as you go forward. That way of working has, has actually helped us to be part of a lot of important policy conversations. So that's a big area of success that we're proud of. Um, and another one, of course, is the Earth Diplomacy Leadership Initiative, which is a series of workshops that we co-host with the Fletcher School at Tufts University, the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy. Those workshops prepare people for the climate negotiations and for other intergovernmental processes. Um, and that keeps growing. So now we have a growing community of, of people who've gone through that process, who are connected to each other, who we can communicate with. Um, and, you know, I think we're now at about 500 people and continuing to grow that community. Uh, that's a really important success of ours. But a final point I'd just like to raise on this is way back in 2014, when we were the international program of CCE and CCO, we wanted to talk to people about fee and dividend, but you can't institute a tax at the global level. There's no way to do that. Um, and you can't really have a global dividend that doesn't exactly work either there have to be more specifics attached to it. So what we did was we translated the logic of fee and dividend and the findings from the study that was done by Remy Regional Economic Models, Inc., some of you may remember, into five principles that we now call the Paris principles. And that was a way of saying, if you're gonna do carbon pricing, it should meet these five standards. And that was part of the conversation that led to the formulation of the Carbon Pricing Leadership Coalition that led to the formulation of paragraph eight of Article Six, recognizing that you need uh, approaches that are not emissions trading. Um, and so that's an early success that was so heavily driven by volunteers. Um, and uh, I think I said finally before, but maybe this will be the finally is we, we have lobby days now happening all over the world. We've had state level, national level lobby days across several African countries, European countries, Latin American countries in the last few uh, weeks even. 
Um, and that's, you know, I think our greatest pride is when we see our the volunteers we support getting out and doing what you all do. That's kind of a great follow-up question. Um, what can we as individuals and or CCL chapters here in the US do to help? Yeah, so, you know, I mean, one of the reasons I really like to throw all of this detail together and provide some context on the international arena for people in the US is that, you know, I'll just be frank and say, I think that the conversation around international climate law in, in Congress is so dysfunctional that it is threatening the future of the country. Um, and it comes from that fundamental misconception. From the very beginning, the whole point of the US and other industrial countries leading, showing leadership, as it said in the convention text and as President Bush at the time in 1992 said, the whole point of that leadership was to spur a global revolution towards sustainable and climate smart practices, uh, global, not just for the US, not just, you know, not to the exclusion of China and India. So the number one way I think that volunteers in the US can help is to keep having constructive conversations where you highlight the fact that the best future for the US is one where the US leads on these issues, not only because we will be leading, but because we will be shaping a world where that's the standard. And in international law and policy, um, you know, legitimacy and leadership are closely tied together. And when you have both of them on your side and you have succeeded in conditioning everyone else to see legitimacy and leadership the way you exemplify it, that is where you can accumulate the most authority in the global arena. And this issue and the, the US frequently refusing to show that leadership because of our divisive politics and because of lies that are told by people in our political system, um, it has significantly hurt our international reputation. It has damaged alliances. It has undermined trade relations. The cost to the country is likely measured in the trillions of dollars. Um, just letting people know that that type of leadership is something you wanna see in line with whatever else you're lobbying for, that's so important. Um, and you know, I think the other thing you can do is where possible, see if you can hand off a conversation to our international teams. If you meet someone who they have an interest in African countries, we have people in those countries who are talking to those governments and there might be an opportunity for lawmakers to talk to each other. Um, you as volunteers and our volunteers in CCI and those places can be connectors to help make that constructive conversation happen. Um, those are things that could be supplemental to what you're doing. Um, you know, but just keeping in mind that these constructive ways of working are eminently possible um, and letting people know that you expect them to show leadership that that's, you know, it's always important to see that. Thank you. And I, I think we have time for one more quick question before we want to do breakouts. Um, so there's been a lot of talk about doing CPAMs and uh, violating the WTO. And there's just a question on, uh, would other trade agreements supersede the WTO? And why is it, and I guess, um, 
I guess that's the question. Yeah. When some of these other agreements supersede the WTO in supporting a CBAM that countries want to implement. So, you know, um, first of all, border adjustments don't violate any international trade rules. Um, what violates international trade rules is protectionism, where you use tariffs in order to give an unfair advantage to people in your own jurisdiction. Now, um, you know, look at sanctions. When you impose sanctions because a country behaves inappropriately or sponsors terrorism or commits war crimes or, or because the government carried out a military coup, those sanctions are something that wouldn't happen in a normal free trade scenario. They happen because that country has shown itself ineligible for that uh, most favorable treatment. So that's an important detail. Um, there's a lot of excuse making from people in government who understand how challenging it is to get the right policies in place. Transformative policies are extremely hard to put in place. Um, whether that's a carbon pricing uh, policy or a border adjustment or, you know, the biggest ever clean energy incentives. Um, so people in government know how hard that is, and there's a lot of excuse making. Um, border adjustments don't violate the WTO. The head of the WTO invites them, says that that is something we need to see more of. We need to see countries working together to distinguish between good trade and bad trade. Bad trade is the kind where you make an investment and you destroy life on earth. That's bad trade. You're allowed to, to prevent that kind of trade from spreading. Um, the question is, can you do it without being protectionist? Um, there are questions about, you know, how is the EU going to carry out its CBAM policy? Will it require other countries to have a carbon pricing policy like its ETS? or like its forthcoming ETS-2 that covers other sectors? Um, will a carbon tax be seen as a harder or more direct price? And if so, does that actually disadvantage the EU? And will the EU accept that? All of those things are fair questions and, and serious questions. In the US context, whether you can put a, a CBAM in place without a direct price, um, you know, in theory, you can do it, um, but you need to show evidence. That's what's so important about the legislation that aims to prove that there is an underlying implicit price, um, because having that evidence is what makes it a credible policy, what makes it not protectionist in nature. Um, of course, there's the other side to that, which is when you go ahead and you start to condition trade based on uh, carbon emissions, are you actually going to hold your trading partners to that standard? Or are you going to treat some as having a right to just pollute as much as they want and treat others as not based on other considerations? Um, so, you know, all of those are important to think about. Uh, the final point, though, I think is this, that for most of the history of the climate negotiations, it has been taboo to talk about trade. The only trade that was really talked about was emissions trading um, and how you quantify and account for that. But trade was seen as dangerous because you didn't want to start a trade war. You didn't want food prices to skyrocket as a result of perverse uh, outcomes of, of what might have been good intentions. Um, 
but now this year there's going to be a day focused on trade. And as I said earlier, Article 6.8 and the, the negotiations emerging around that, these climate clubs that will be developed, um, that's creating an incentive to talk about trade as not just a critical lever, but as a defining feature of climate policy. If you don't have climate smart trade, you can't solve climate change. That is now being recognized finally. Um, you know, 31 years after the convention was agreed. Um, all of that is relevant to how border adjustments will be put in place. But the bottom line always is going to be that the point of a border adjustment is to say, we are trying to do things the right way here. We're trying to look out for people, trying to get the right outcomes. And we don't want to fund or to give unfair advantage to cheaters. It's the same logic that we apply to human rights, that we apply to war crimes and sanctions, the same logic that we apply to uh, countries that use slave labor, where we impose trade penalties on them because of that. Uh, so you have to have the good purpose and you have to stick to it and live by it. Um, and then the other is you can't be a protectionist. You can't be a cheater yourself and say that you're punishing cheaters. Uh, so those are the bottom lines there on that, and uh, just worth keeping in mind for those conversations. Um, so I think we're set to go to breakouts now, and um, what we want to do is take 15 minutes to have a quick conversation. This is spontaneous. It's wherever you want it to go with the group that you happen to find yourself with, and we want to look at these specific uh, questions, which is, you know, first of all, identify an area of international climate cooperation that could benefit from a non-market approach. So some sort of international agreement, like the ones that I shared a, uh, a couple slides ago, um, you know, some area of international climate cooperation that could benefit from one of these types of pacts or agreements. What group of countries might participate, right? Um, if you, have, if you have the EU as a group of countries at 27 already, a couple more might follow, you get to 30, and then you, know, you can get to 40 from there pretty easily. But in other cases, you might have only two countries, the US and China, for instance, the big agreement they made back in 2015, uh, sorry, 2014 on renewable energy um, that helped to create the conditions for the Paris Agreement, that's an example. What policies, cooperative strategies, resources, technologies might be involved? Feel free to pick and choose and don't have to cover everything, right? We're in this age when we know solving climate change is about every single thing. We don't have to do every single thing in every conversation. We just have to ultimately get to it. So what is involved in your NMA? And then how would that benefit the participating countries and the overall climate crisis response? So let's take 15 minutes to just brainstorm a little bit and then we'll come back and have a bit of a reporting back. We'll ask each group to have one person just share a few key insights, you know, maybe about one minute per group, um, and then we'll go on from there. Okay, welcome back, everybody. Um, so I think we do want to have just a quick report back from each of the breakouts. I hope you guys selected somebody. If not, you might uh, randomly appoint somebody from your group now. Uh, but just go ahead and raise your hand digitally, um, or if you're on video, you can do it visually, and um, and Thaddeus will uh, 
we'll put you in sequence from there. Francis, I'm sorry, Sam, did you want me to go? Yeah, yes, please. Oh, okay. Um, our group decided to look at methane because methane is a very potent greenhouse gas that comes from many different sources and that emissions have uh, typically been drastically underestimated, even in a country like the United States, there's a, a lot of technological capability. Uh, so we wanted to start by having um, you know, international cooperation to um, improve uh, data sharing. There's a lot more data coming out as we're getting more satellite data. And um, then once we have that data sharing, uh, countries can look at what makes the most sense for methane abatement uh, with the sources that they have. And then also be able to see how successful they are in that abatement as the emissions change, hopefully. Brilliant, thank you, Francis. And was there, did you have a name for this cooperative effort or you focused on the details, which is of course better? Yeah, we didn't get to a name. We probably needed a little more time to get that far. No, it's all right. And, you know, I asked partly because that's sometimes what holds everything up. So it's actually good that you went right for the details. Um, the name can take up the whole time. Uh, okay, who's next? Uh, Linda, you should be able to unmute now. Yeah, for group three, we talked about micro lending, such as Grameen Bank and Kiva as a way to support uh, renewable energy in other countries. We also talked about uh, one person talked about lawmakers to, in Boston um, being involved in international cooperation. And we talked about cooperation between the U.S. and Central America on drought-resistant crops and trees to um, help uh, prevent migration from Central America to the U.S. It's in our interest to help them deal with drought and reduce migration. Okay. Yes. We don't have a title, but we... Um... We decided to tackle climate refugees, and um, we saw our 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 potential allies as the Western Hemisphere. Um, we would seek to leverage the resources that each country has. Um, we would need to prep our country to recognize our leadership in this sector. In, in our all sectors climate, but in this particular one as well, we can we can leverage what we've do we're doing in the West on how we're sharing water, the Colorado River. We see our the partners in our own country as Homeland Security, HHS, and education because climate education in all in all our schools will have to. Uh, begin to see our the cross-cultural connections as so important to improve and especially business and nonprofit is potential education. And there are a number of nonprofits. My daughter-in-law, for instance, has a care, care innovation hub. So this is all about care and understanding that the developed countries, Canada and the United States are demographically very old. And the climate refugees tend to be very young. Brilliant. A lot of really good insights there. And also fantastic that there's it's down to the agencies involved and how they can help implement really important. Uh, Thank you. There. Thank you. Who's next? Uh, Sandy should be up next. Yeah, hi. Um, 
I didn't, I'm not sure which, uh, which group we we're in. And I'm just kind of jumping in here to volunteer. Um, I think we we're very confused about what constitutes a non-market um, agreement. And we would appreciate having some, uh, a better understanding of the examples. Um, um, Marlana Margaret Stenford, I think was her name, was in our group and was very helpful in, in, in understanding this. She clearly has a background in that. Um, I think one of the things that somebody suggested right at the end of the session was to um, understand better about uh, international um, electrical power sharing agreements. So just like the Big Wires Act is in encouraging more sharing between uh, regional power effort, are there things that can be done as far as international sharing? And somebody from New Hampshire mentioned they are already doing that as far as sharing hydro from Quebec. So there are places where electrical power is being shared internationally. I assume that's considered a non-market agreement. So that was Absolutely. all I had. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. And, and great to hear from Milan has certainly been very involved in uh, some of these international discussions. Um, to just clarify, so non-market, yes, that's a non-market approach because it does not involve emissions trading. Every single form of international cooperation that does not involve emissions trading is potentially a non-market approach under Article 6.8. It doesn't have to be governed by the UN. It's just something countries choose to do. Um, and that's a really great example that you cited with the international electrical power sharing uh, agreements. And we'll put a link in the chat also that, that gives you, uh, for those interested, a little bit of an overview of uh, some potential non-market approaches that are out there. Um, who's next? Yes, looking at the uh, those staggering statistics about uh, three to six billion people that will be on the margins, um, we were looking at uh, successful models to uh, resuscitate a uh, a village, a region um, have been two successful models. One is uh, Mohammed Yunus's micro lending, which has brought millions of, of um, families out of poverty across several continents. And the other is uh, the Heifer Project, which uh, works um, with uh, families and uh, chickens and goats and uh, as a means to feed themselves and also to send their children to school with the profits. And these are uh, have been operating for years and uh, have helped uh, an incredible number of people. So I'm thinking that um, women uh, are in these developing countries are a good bet for uh, because they have a sense of community, they have a bond with the children and uh, uh, have proven to be a, um, a stable source of lending and paying back and helping one another uh, in groups of five or so to uh, establish um, uh, agricultural industry in their villages. Excellent example, and there, there's so many uh, there's so many efforts, some involving governments and some not involving governments, to support that type of uh, effort. Uh, often, it all falls under the the heading of smallholder farmers, 
sometimes it's down to subsistence farmers and how to help them become exporters to their local markets, not even their national markets, and sometimes exporters to national and international markets as well. Um, but the, the micro scale support and which strategies work is really important. Thank you, Bill, for those, those really good examples. Yes, we uh, discussed the, the here and now, the carbon border adjustment mechanism that is uh, now underway in the European Union with the uh, trial period for two years of data collection on carbon intensities. And on January 1st, 2026, it will start and U.S. industries will be paying uh, duties to get into the European market. <clears throat> the U.K. is on board in pursuing uh, some way to connect to that EU, Japan and Canada as well. And the G7 countries are all uh, on board on that approach based on one of their recent resolutions. But that leaves the U.S., uh, the one that needs to look at how to do a carbon price and connect to this border carbon adjustment. And uh, once you do that and open it up to anyone else who wants to join, you have the incentives spreading around the world that are based on economic costs and benefits, uh, which you don't find in most of your other agreements, including in the Paris Agreement, which is fundamentally voluntary. So that border carbon adjustment is the focus, I think, for the next year, in the year and a half. Excellent, thank you. Uh, and I should say to those who don't know that uh, Robert Archer has long been one of those uh, intellectual leading lights in our international carbon pricing efforts and helped contribute to that conversation uh, way back around uh, carbon pricing principles for fair, efficient, and uh, effective carbon pricing. Uh, Marlana, would you like to share? I've seen your hand go up and down a few times. Oh, yes. Uh, oh, yes. Um, our group was talking about um, permitting, permitting reform. My group also had a lot of questions with uh, Article 6 and its role in the, um, in the Paris Agreement. And they have a very interesting question in terms of um, permitting and transmission lines and how, it, uh, how it's going to create opportunities in trade in the future, which um, which, which uh, in my state where I'm from, it's it's been a reoccurring topic um, for many years. Um, uh, the state of Nevada, in terms of um, energy transition of transportation energy systems. Um, however, I do want to reiterate the uh, transmission, uh, transmission and permitting reform, and then uh, project implementation is it's of a grid that creates clean, affordable, and accessible, resilient energy for all um, at the end of the day the the acceleration the accelerating uh, hope of being able to export energy and create a, a thriving economic development agenda for a state or or a country is a, is is important but at the end of the day is to make sure that there is clean affordable accessible resilient energy for all that meets the equity and the sustainable development uh, part of the paris agreement so we're looking at that that resilient grid, it's for people, it's for buildings, it's for um, energy plant, um, it's it's for yeah housing, uh, people's housing. So um, that is the most important part because I know some I know trade is important. The key takeaway from from last year and this year is is the topic of trade, uh, and so I just want to reiterate that. 
Excellent. Thank you, Milana. Very important insights there. And I just maybe highlight for people, if you look at the language of Article 6.8, which has this international component, a lot of what Marlana just shared is there, clean, accessible, affordable, and resilient poverty eradication, sustainable development, inclusion, resilience, they're all part of that. Um, so that's a really good insight to, to keep in mind. Okay, we've got about, I'd say, two more minutes for, for reporting back. Who else do we have? Yes, hi, can you hear me okay? I think so. Yeah, I was, uh, we were group five. We actually came up with um, about five or six different ideas and then we took a vote and one uh, edged out uh, all the others and it's um, international deforestation agreement, I guess you might call it. Uh, essentially, we talked about uh, palm trees, uh, palm oil, which is insidious and uh, permeates everything from bread to peanut butter. And, uh, and also the uh, clear cutting of, uh, of forests, uh, particularly in uh, South America for um, growing soybeans and also producing uh, cattle. So the idea for that would be to involve uh, countries that are large palm oil consumers and uh, also um, large uh, beef eaters uh, as a way of bringing you know, those together to uh, try to work on that problem. Uh, I do want to briefly mention real quickly the second one, which I thought was pretty good also, and I think we've got about four or five votes on that as well, and that was an international fossil fuel agreement to be able to help countries that are uh, pouring money into fossil fuels and get them to switch to uh, renewables uh, to, uh, you know, uh, curtail uh, emissions. Brilliant, thank you, Joe. Really important, and I'll, I'll maybe say a word about that fossil fuel idea uh, in a minute. Do we have any more reports back? I think we have one last hand raised. Uh, Bill has his hand raised. Yes, thank you. I uh, was taken with Marlana's uh, report, and uh, I wanted to suggest that the very first step for our permitting reform and big wires push uh, with our legislators is to make the environmental justice communities heard first in the process. But that should be our first step. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. And, you know, this is the beauty of this whole discussion around these non-market approaches. That's just a wonky term developed in the UN system, but it, it's about cooperation and Ultimately, it's about a lot of complexity and finding ways to handle that complexity together so that we get more efficiency in the overall climate crisis response. Um, and that's a really important area. If we start from the idea that everything we're doing is technical and technological and that it isn't fundamentally a human and justice challenge that we're talking about, um, then we focus on the technology, the money, who gets what. Uh, but if we start from the human element and we say, you know, people have a right not to be harmed. So let's figure out how to do that. Let's not harm people who are being harmed now. Let's not harm people economically. Let's get the right design. Uh, we can potentially get an even better design. And so I'm going to use that as a segue to highlight this really important piece of um, the overall uh, of the overall moment we're facing here on climate policy internationally. 
you know, at Citizens Climate International, we say that a livable future is a human right. That's kind of how we sloganize our values. Um, we put it right under our name as an organization. And, you know, there are a few reasons why we do that. But one of them is that when you look at the way international law is structured, the core of it, the beating heart of it, the outer limit of it, it it's human rights that define why international law is necessary to prevent the, the destruction of, of a livable human experience, um, to prevent war, to, to prevent senseless harm. And so, you know, legitimate, legitimacy itself is linked to whether countries are effective at honoring that core principle of international law. And yes, some countries are prosperous, they have wealth and power, even though they don't do a good job, but their legitimacy is significantly uh, reduced and their ability to do a lot of things um, is hindered by the fact that they don't carry that legitimacy when they come into the room. Um, and so we'll here talk about finance as a golden thread, tying everything else together, but it's, when we focus on the finance, it becomes about who gets what and who has what to give, and it becomes a, more of a zero-sum conversation. When we think about the golden thread as human rights, all people, regardless of where they're from, regardless of who governs them, have a right to remain free from harm. And then we look at the science telling us that 6 billion people will not only be deprived, they will be living beyond the livable region of the planet. That means we need to figure out how to shape international law so that we can connect climate rights and legitimacy directly to each other. We will get a much higher ambition implementation strategy if we can effectively do that. And so this is one of the reasons why we're starting to focus more and more on the vulnerability of people, not only to climate impacts, but once they are on the move, when people have to leave their home, when they have to leave their country to seek safety, do they have rights? Are they protected? Um, we often think of this as a question of whether the people in the country of destination want to receive them or feel like they have the resources. When that is the discussion, that recipient country has already failed. Right. When the discussion is, do we feel empowered to help these people? Do we have the patience? Do we have the desire? Do we have the resources? That is a confession that the country in question is not living up to its own values as a nation state whose legitimacy is rooted in the defense of human rights. So we're looking at how to make sure that this is part of the conversation. Uh, whether it's around carbon pricing and economic costs or whether it's around uh, accessible, affordable, clean energy for all. Um, and on that point about fossil fuels, there is actually a proposal some of you may be familiar with called the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty. It's based on arms non-proliferation treaty agreements. And the concept is that countries can work together to help each other stop investing in the bad stuff. Um, it's getting more traction among governments. It'll be one of the things we're calling for at the COP as well, um, along with allies around the world. Um, and so I think we've made a case here that this is a big challenge. We all knew that already. Uh, 
I hope we've made a case that there are new tools becoming available that could be game changers. And I hope you'll all find a way to carry that message forward in whatever you're doing. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you for spending part of your Sunday on this big global challenge. Um, and uh, good luck in, in everything you do from here. Thank you for listening to this episode of Citizens Climate Lobby's training program. You can tune into more episodes anywhere podcasts are available. Inspired by what you heard today? Join Citizens Climate Lobby to advocate for bipartisan climate solutions. Go to community.citizensclimate.org to find more trainings, resources, your local chapter, national action teams, discussion forums, and more. Be sure to like our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Citizens Climate. We also invite all of our listeners to subscribe to our YouTube channel for more inspiration. Like what you hear? Recommend us to your friends and make sure to give us a five-star rating. It helps us show up on other listeners' feeds. Feel free to pass on any suggestions for future episodes in the comments as well. And together, we are creating the political will for a livable world.